Welcome to Puto Politics, the political podcast of the San Antonio Express News. My name is Gilbert Garcia, Metro columnist, and I'm joined by City Hall reporter Joshua Fector. Business editor and columnist Greg Jefferson. Recording this on Monday, March 8th, we are six weeks away from the beginning of early voting for uh, San Antonio City Council and, and mayoral elections. And, uh, you know, a lot, there's been a lot of focus on, on uh, the open seats, districts three and five, and there are a lot of candidates there. But uh, I've been paying a lot of attention, I think we all have, to, uh, to District 2 on the east side, where you have uh, 11 candidates challenging the incumbent, Jada Andrew Sullivan. It's, it's unusual to have an incumbent facing that many challengers. And uh, we, as our guest today, we have one of the challengers, but not just one of the challengers, someone who's, I think, really uh, stood out already in the process. Um, Jalen McHugh Rodriguez is 26 years old, a teacher at Madison High School. In the first six weeks of his campaign, raised more than seventeen thousand uh, dollars. I think that was by far the most uh, in District Two, um, and uh, has been getting a lot of a lot of attention and a lot of uh, progressive support. Uh, just over the weekend, got the endorsement of the Stonewall Democrats, and so um, we're really glad to have uh, have Jalen join us today. Uh, Jalen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you, thank you so much for having me. This is this is great. We were talking before we started that you know we we kind of planned out this this Monday for the podcast because you are a teacher and this is your spring break. And I don't think uh, it would have been possible for you to do it on any other Monday, or at least it would have, it would have been really tough for you to, to take uh, 25 minutes off from your classes, I think, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's, especially now that we're in the kind of hybrid virtual in-person uh, it would have been very, very difficult. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine. Well, I, I wanted to start talking about what was the biggest story in Texas over the past week, um, which was Governor Greg Abbott's announcement that he's basically lifting all uh, COVID-19 restrictions. There had been a statewide mask mandate that had, had been in place for the past eight months. Uh, there had been uh, restrictions on business occupancy levels for basically a year. And he has lifted both of those and, and like sort of left individuals to decide if they want to wear masks or not. Uh, and businesses have to kind of figure out what their policies are going to be. And they are, businesses can now have 100% occupancy if they want to. Um, I really wanted to get your thoughts, Jalen, on, on this announcement from, uh, from the governor and, and what, what you think the, the impact of that's going to be. Oh my gosh, yes. It's like we can't have one crisis at a time. <laughs> we have to add in now the, you know, not that long ago, there were people storming the Capitol. Um, there's still people who are feeling very much on edge. Um, and I'm very concerned and worried about those businesses that do want to make sure that they're keeping their um, their employees safe as well as their customers safe and what that's going to mean when people start storming in and demanding that they don't have to wear a mask and saying my governor said this and I'm just I feel for everybody who's about to have to deal with that um, as a teacher I'm very concerned luckily my district has um, you know they've decided we're still going to have to wear masks in school but I am worried about what are what about our parents who are going to be complaining and who are going to be upset and who are going to tell their kids you know what no matter what don't take off your mask cuz you know it's it's legal now I'm very concerned by that and what the governor has just unleashed uh Jalen like when you go around district 2 I mean how much sentiment is there for just ending all all mask requirements or are you finding that at all Oh, no, it seems very much everybody is still very um, 
everyone is very fearful of COVID. And we, we recognize that on East, West and South sides, that's where majority of the deaths um, related to COVID are happening and where a lot of these cases are taking place. And where, you know, a lot of the people that we're speaking to, they're seniors. Um, they want to be safe. They want to make sure everybody around them is staying safe because they're seeing what this looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's not really that much interest in, you know, a society where we're not wearing masks in the middle of a pandemic, a deadly pandemic. Right. Well, Governor Abbott's order, I mean, it, it effectively undercuts city's ability to enforce mass rules. I mean, you know, in your view, is there anything that City Hall can can do about it to, to you know, to encourage mask wearing? Yeah, I mean, really, that's that's all it can be at the moment is going to be the um, that encouragement that's saying, hey, let's we're still responsible for keeping our people safe. Um, we're still responsible for keeping our neighbors safe. Um, we're going to continue wearing masks. We're going to you know, we're going to lead by example. Um, I think that's very much what can be done. Um, I'm hoping that there's that. And I hope that at some point there's incentivizing for businesses. Um, but mm-hmm. we're seeing a very um, reactionary city council and mayor. Um, I hope that they're proactive on this. But Reactionary in what way? So reactionary in the way that they wait for something traumatic and terrible to happen before and and days after that to happen. Um, they're not really, it doesn't feel as though they're saying, okay, the they're going to wait until the 10th to say or do anything when this news has broken early on. That's, that's kind of what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I, I wonder that kind of, you know, that, that sort of reminds me, uh, you brought up the, the, the fact of the, uh, you know, the virus has had a disproportionate impact on the East, West and South sides. Uh, you know, how do you feel Metro health and the city have, have done enough to really, uh, boost some sort of uh, ha- have done enough to sort of protect people in those those areas from the virus, or is this uh, just purely the the result of historic inequities? Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think it's you know we knew before there was a vaccine that this that these sides of towns and you know these communities of colors and these marginalized communities that they're most impacted, but a majority of the vaccinations are happening on the north side. It's also we're tying the um, we don't have a, a true wait list. We're requiring working yeah. families to yeah. be tied by a phone 24 seven in the hope of possibly getting a vaccine. And, you know, whenever it, whenever it pops up, it's like, oh, um, we sign up at this link. It fills up in like 10 minutes. Sure. There's no way that's equitable for I'm thinking about some of the seniors, some of the older women that I've spoken to recently who have been trying for weeks, weeks to get a vaccine. Um, and has, has it been clear to you, uh, Jalen, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's been, have you got any sense of like what the justification has been for not having a wait list? Cause there's so many people who have, who have talked about how this would make the process work better. What, what's your sense about that? Yeah. I'm honestly, I've even heard council members <laughs> speak about this. So I am not sure why this is not happening. I'm not sure. It feels like this is common sense at this point, and it's just nobody's acting on it. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about, you know, the, uh, obviously a, a huge story in, in the state, and this was a nationwide story uh, recently, was what the state went through with the, the 
Well, we got, we got another guest, I think. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> sorry, that's my dog. No, that's okay. I mean, if, you know, if, if, if your dog had a question, we can, that's, that's, that's cool. Um, but, uh, Jail, you know, we, we had, we went through the, the statewide, uh, issue with, uh, uh, power outages, water outages, uh, about three weeks ago. And, um, I think there were a lot of questions about this was obviously mandated by ERCOT, the, the operator of the statewide grid, but there were questions about how it was implemented locally and, and how people, um, you, you talked about inequities in the, in the system. And I think there were, there were concerns about how these rolling blackouts were, were, were distributed uh, throughout the city and throughout the community. Um, what are your thoughts about that? Um, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure we could really call them rolling blackouts. I mean, right. uh, at least not rotating, not rotating in an equitable sense at all. Right. Um, I think this whole, this, this is also an example where we should have been proactive. We knew that the cold was going to happen. Um, and we know that ki- climate change is, you know, a threat to us. And yet we're not winterizing our infrastructure, knowing that we're going to see these instances of extreme heat, extreme cold. Um, we should have had a comprehensive plan in place to protect our residents, especially those most vulnerable. Um, we need to make sure that our residents with older, with older homes have proper insulation and building upgrades that are going to keep them warm and safe when this happens again, because it's not a, if it's a when, um, and we should have had warming centers in place. And I'm thinking, especially about the grand Hyatt, which received a $13 million bailout and could have been used for an emergency shelter for our houseless community. Many of which are LGBTQ plus and are members of other marginalized groups. Um, and I'm thinking about, you know, just because, just because, I don't, I don't know where to go with that, but it's, it's just, it's disheartening. It's very disheartening. Mm-hmm. Well, Jalen, I, I wonder, you know, with, uh, you know, obviously back in December, Councilman Trevino uh, brought up the, the idea of using the Grand Hyatt as, as a warming center um, and was sort of brushed off by the city manager. Uh, what do you make of, of sort of the you know, city manager's role in this and the, the role of city leadership? You know, I think, so I'll I'll talk about Trevino first. I believe that he really, really, truly cares about people. And, you know, I I was somebody who was on Michael Montano's campaign when he was trying to unseat Trevino. Um, And I believe that with Trevino, there's been a lot of growth on his end. And I feel more represented by him than my own council person because he's showing up and he's trying. Um, And I think the city council, I mean, the the city manager and Ron Nuremberg, they're very upset at Trevino. Um, because he is very outspoken and he is, um, it, you know, in some senses doing the most. But if you want to get outraged and you want to spread your message, you don't do it in a whisper. Like you can't do it in a whisper. So a lot of the things that we see as maybe a bit extra or as grandstanding are absolutely necessary. And these are the actions that get media attention and it amplifies the work that's already being done. Um, and I think it creates a headache for the city manager and the mayor. And that's why. You know, that's why we're seeing some of this retaliatory kind of things going on. Mm-hmm. One of the other big, uh, you know, stories about uh, the San Antonio elections this year has to do with the ballot initiative from Fix SAPD, a uh, group which is, you know, trying to reform policing in San Antonio. And their their ballot measure calls for the repeal of collective bargaining for the police union. Um You know, I think the, the mayor is kind of staying out of the fray on that one. Um and, you know, there have been 
even people who want police reform, some have made the argument that collective bargaining is the way to do it. There have been there have been disagreements about that. Uh, how do you see that? Um, absolutely. I think one of the biggest things right now that I'm so upset that we're allowing the police union to do is they are trying to pretend like they are actually a union that has been a part of the labor movement. They're able they've been able to, you know, make it seem as though if they lose collective bargaining rights, everybody loses collective bargaining rights. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely not the case. There's a reason that why until now, they haven't been active with the labor with the um, American Federation of Labor. They haven't been, um, you know, a part of any of these movements. They've been very much a part of the oppressive class. And I'm absolutely support supportive of um, increasing police accountability, including re repealing 174, and eventually 143. Um, and I want to make sure that I want to make sure that it passes. I'm very much, you know, I feel I'm a stakeholder in this and my team will definitely be distributing um, literature and whatnot in these coming so you'll weeks. You'll be helping that campaign yeah, in the next few weeks. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you and I talked a few weeks ago uh, about the fact that you did work uh, as communications director in Jada Andrew Sullivan's uh, city uh, council office for about five and a half months after she got uh, elected in 2019. You you were one of the people who helped get her elected. And uh, I, I know that the experience of working for her was a really disillusioning one for you. Um, could you talk a little bit about what you expect, what your expectations were for her when you, you joined her staff and the areas in which you were disappointed by what you saw? Absolutely. I think so I, I believe I said this last time we spoke is that I, I really believe that our government needs to be made up of working class people, people with stories, people who are going to feel the impacts of the decisions that they make on the dais. Um, and when I was paying very close attention to that appointment process, um, she was one of the top three finalists. And I really I, I felt her story. I felt, you know, she's a single mother, survivor of domestic violence. Um, she was a veteran. She's started her own businesses. Um, and she, in conversations with me, made it seem as though she was, you know, she was going to be very progressive. What's disappointed me is that I found along the way that that is not the case, that she's not as progressive as she says that she was going to be. Um, she's allowed herself to be ma manipulated by a chief of staff who <laughs> does not have the best interests of the community. We're talking, we're talking about Lou Miller. We're talking about Lou Miller, right? Yeah. We're talking about Lou Miller, um, it, it becomes clear when we were talking about that migrant detention center. She was gonna, she was gonna vote supportive of it, and me, um, uh, Frankie, who was her chief of her director of policy, we were like, no, 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 please don't do this. We were trying to get top mm -hmm. in the in the um, in the conversation, and she was not trying to hear it. Um, we had to we had to put our own press conference on and feed her what to say and she's still at that press conference spoke speaking to the lawyer is like i'm still with you and that was just that was one of the biggest wake-up calls but it's also while i was in that office lou miller is a very homophobic person and uh he would make comments about the way that i dressed the way that i looked the way i acted if i was line dancing with senior women at a senior center he had a comment to say about it and i came to jada and i said Hey, this is happening. You know, here's this email. He's detailed. Here's a list. I kept I kept a list of what's going on. And she made it clear that it was Lou Miller. And, you know, it was either him or 
everybody else. Everybody else was going to go. She, he was going to, he was never going to leave that office. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's paid very much so for that. But I think what that, what that demonstrates is the need for an expanded non-discrimination ordinance. Because if someone like me in city hall is being discriminated against is openly tell, I'm, I was telling other council members, I was mm-hmm. telling city staff, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. And I would also be supportive of a, and I, I'm going to work to establish a union for council aides because they need to have the right to advocate for themselves because, you know, you see people who are being taken advantage of and that's completely unacceptable, unacceptable at this point. Going back to the non-discrimination ordinance, how would you, like, how would you put teeth in it? Um, absolutely. I think so. One, it needs to apply to all businesses in the city, um, needs to apply to contract employees as well. Um, and I believe that we have the capacity to implement fines and fees for those businesses that do not adhere to uh, a non-discrimination policy. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, I want to mention too that that when we talked about the what your your experiences in the district two office, uh, I, I reached out to to Lou Miller and and the councilwoman, and they declined to to talk about you know what what had happened there and said that they they don't talk about personnel issues. So they they've 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 been given an opportunity to talk about it, but they've they've chosen to not to do that uh, up to this point. Uh, yeah, I think that's funny because um, I remember in um, it was October of 2019 they did speak on personnel matters because at the time, uh, Loretta Gatlin McDavid had also filed a, a discrimination complaint. Um, she's also a LGBTQ woman. Um, and she filed. And then when she went to the media about it, Jada called her a disgruntled employee. And at this point she has five disgruntled employees in the span of two years. How do you lose that much of a staff? And how do you have 11 people trying to tap challenge you? I think that speaks to who she is as a, you know, the way that the community feels about her and the way that she is in the community. Okay. So, um, real quick on, on the NDO, Jalen, have you been speaking to like the chambers and business groups about this? Have you been sort of like, you know, testing the waters on, on sort of the expansion of the NDO and what kind of feedback have you gotten? I have not. That's going to be a conversation that happens very soon. We're still, um, despite the fact that this has been moving on pretty fast, we are still in the early stages of, you know, campaign season. Um, and that's absolutely on my priority list. It's just been very hard with the pandemic and whatnot. And businesses are advocating for themselves at this moment for a number of other things. Um, so we're going to definitely have that conversation and I think it'll be fruitful. I want to ask you a little bit about your background. I know that I, I think you were born in Tennessee, if I'm right, and but you were part of a military <laughs> family, so you've moved around quite a bit. Uh, if you talk a little bit about what that experience is like, because I know uh, uh, people I've known who've, who've had that experience. I mean, it's, it's a very unusual thing to to kind of be the new person going, uh, moving from place to place. Um, and also just w- what at what point did you become politicized? When did when did you sort of start to develop a political consciousness? Being a military brat, being someone who, you know, the son of veterans, uh, you have to grow very quickly and you have to be very aware of who you are as a person. Um, and you have to be able to establish yourself in a number of groups and a number of settings. Um, <laughs> and I think that's something that all the children of military parents can relate to in some sense. Uh, we're, we're not supposed to talk about me being from Tennessee, me being born there. Uh, <laughs> I know nothing. I know. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize I was off limits. <laughs> no, it's okay. I don't know anything about Tennessee. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so that's 
that's a few of the things that come with being a military right and i think um growing up i remember there were two there were two very big things that happened when i was younger one was when obama was elected i was living in hawaii i was half black half white i you know I had seen Punahou Academy up close and in person. Mm. And it was just such an amazing experience to see that someone like me that had so many different, so many different parts of me, I felt represented by, um, in Barack Obama. And that was an amazing, um, instance. Um, and then also when I was, I believe I had turned 17 years old on my 17th birthday, um, Trayvon Martin was killed and he had just turned 17 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was such a huge, that was sort of the start of what we're seeing. Not the start. It was for me, the start of my place in this movement for black lives. Um, so I'd say those are two big, big things for me, two big influential moments. Gotcha. Well, it, you know, if, if uh, you talked about your experiences and, and uh, you know, the, the homophobia that, you know, you felt that you, you experienced in the district uh, two office and, you know, if you get elected, uh, in district two, you, you would be the first openly gay, uh, member of the council. Um, what, what, just in terms of the, the history, the potential history in that, um, you know, what does that, what does that mean to you? Oh my gosh. It means a lot, especially, um, whenever we first started talking about a potential run for district two, um, because people would have reached out to me and they're like, Hey, Jalen, you should run for this seat. Um, there was always this conversation of is district two ready for um, a gay man to represent them? Are they going to be open to you walking and knocking on their doors? And are they going to say, Oh yeah, that's the guy that I want representing me. And it's, (laughs) there have been some funny, there have been some great, great stories. And I've just the other day, one of my close friends who's walking with us, she was talking to um, an older man and he was saying, this guy on this flyer, he likes boys, doesn't he? (laughs) (laughs) And she says, and she says, well, yes, he's married to a man. And he's like, you know, I, I like his smile and I like what he said on this flyer. Uh, so I will vote for him. And can I have a yard sign? And it shows that we're just in need of so much that District 2 will look past a number of things that maybe they wouldn't have in the past. And they are absolutely ready for an openly gay man to represent them. And the city is ready for that. We've been ready for a long time. Um, and so to be a part of that history is amazing, but it's beyond so much more than me because this has been in, you know, this has been in the making for a very long time. You know, as, as the city starts to work, it's, it's way out of the, the COVID-19, uh, pandemic and the economic impact of it. What special, special needs do you see economically for district two, which as you pointed out, I mean, has always, um, I think it's generally gotten the, the short end of the stick where, you know, in, in, in terms of, um, services in the city and, and has, and has always had, you know, unique economic challenges. What, what, what do you look at, um, as we sort of kind of work our way back to something close to, you know, economic normalcy? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking about the need for experts at city hall. We need council members who are not going to push blame on the city manager and staff and city staff needs to enact the will of the city council who enacts the will of the community. What we want and need needs to be what happens. And as we talk about reopening and the economy, our priorities have been messed up. We're bailing out the Grand Hyatt while not too far down the street, our neighbors are homeless looking for a place to sleep. People's homes are being struck down with code enforcement violations and having their power threatened to be 
you know, shut off. And I believe we we really need to start talking about direct relief that needs to be provided um, both to, you know, normal everyday people, but also to businesses um, and to landlords who should be providing rent forgiveness. Um, we need a number of these things to happen. Um, and I think a lot of our a lot of our elected officials are using this time to grandstand for political issues and they want to make they want to prolong the conversation because they're not really being affected by it too much. And I think that's a huge disservice to our community. So I think those are a number of things that need to happen. Where do you think some of the gaps might be in, in the uh, in the city's response on, on sort of the economic side to the pandemic? For sure. So I think we need to expand the efforts for, like I was saying earlier, the um, rent forgiveness. This is something that is happening where um, people can get rent forgiveness and landlords can get cash and tax incentives. Um, we need to see this, you know, expanded um, as well. I think I would really like to see our local officials advocate for a livable wage, advocate for, um, you know, $15 or more an hour as a minimum. And we're trying to stay out of these big national issues when we are absolutely impacted by it at a local level. And I would I think we need to start seeing more of this happen. And just to go back to to programs to maybe help with rent and mortgage. Is that is that something you'd be willing to dip into the city's reserve fund, its savings to do? Absolutely. There's no if there's <laughs> there's this like fear of going into that, you know, that bucket. But if not now, when, if we are at our, we are at our lowest point, it's absolutely necessary now. Well, I think uh, we're going to wrap things up at that point. Uh, Jalen Mickey Rodriguez, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Uh, Good luck with the rest of your campaign. And um, it was really good talking to you. Take care. Thank you so much for having me. And those of you listening in, we'll be back again uh, next Monday and uh, hope you're doing well. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 